Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Why Are You Like This, a podcast devoted to finding out who we are and why we do the things we do. I'm your host, Ryan Andrews, and today's guest and I go way back to the soy fields of Decatur, Illinois. He is the brilliant writer, actor, comedian, and hot person, Joel Kim Booster. Hey, I love to be described as a hot person. I love that it's a part of my brand now. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it does feel nice. It does. Uh, I, I, I will say, though, that like sometimes it does feel like a joke when people say it as a part of like an intro like that. I'm like, are they being genuine? Like I believe you are Ryan, but I do think that sometimes it, it like people take it as a bit. Uh, and I don't appreciate that because it is a genuine, a genuine huge part of my personality is being hot now. It's really hard. Like once I decided to be hot, it's one hard not to talk about because it takes a lot of effort and yeah, no, truly. To all I constantly think about. <laughs> so I appreciate your hard work and your effort to be a known hot person across the land. God bless. I was actually uh, laughing as I was thinking about us doing this interview today because I legitimately met you like during my first week of college smoking a bowl yes. off the balcony of Crystal Palace. Oh, wow. And it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, I'm at college now. Yeah. That, <laughs> that God, was that like 10 years ago? Something like yeah. that? More, maybe? Yeah. More. Ugh, yeah, more. I feel, I feel old. I hate it. Neither one of us would. You wouldn't know if you looked at us from afar. No, it's true. Yeah. It's very true. <laughs> I'm a CW sophomore in college, okay? There you go. I yeah. still, so I still do musical theater and I was recently auditioning for a newsie because that's what I do day in, day out. And a legitimate, maybe 20 year old was walking around the room being like, I'm the oldest one here. And I was like, if you want to claim it, go off, baby. Yeah, truly. <laughs> that's what you want. I mean, I just turned 34 and I was, um, my, I was at this thing and my agent was like, Oh, how old are you turning? And I was like, 34, like, shouldn't you know that, Daniel? And he was like, oh, babe, like, to me, you are 27 to 32. Like, that is, that is the range. <laughs> He's like, I don't give a shit how old you actually are. 
as long as you keep looking 27 to 32. So I'll take it. Take I'll take that. 27 to 32. Yeah, I yeah, it's a mind fuck for me. I'm just like barely now cresting into high schoolers. So it's like super exciting to be a 30 year old in yeah, today's day and age. Of... Things could be worse. I could look yeah. older, I guess. Yeah, truly. <laughs> so Joel, how are things? Um, things are going really well right now. I'm sort of like in a chill period of my life right now, but things like, I don't know, everything has uh, been going pretty well for me over the last, since over 2022, certainly at the the tail end of 2021. I, I have no complaints. My biggest worry right now is like, when is the other shoe going to drop? Like when is the bad thing going to happen to sort of balance out all the good things that have been happening. So again, as we've said many times on this podcast already, things could be worse. Um, <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, right now I have, I have no major complaints. That's great. That's a great space to be in. I yeah. like to think that the bad things like the shoe to drop that normally I'm like, what would happen in my life to be bad are just like bigger and more worldly now. So like, Yes, it's more yeah. concerning, but it doesn't immediately affect me. Right. Yeah. The world is burning. My corner of the world, my little sliver of life is doing quite well. But it, you know, who who cares, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if the world is going to literally be on fire in 10 years, like, does it really matter that I have a television show? You know, like it doesn't, <laughs> no one's going to see it. No one's going to remember that. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a better way of looking at things is, um, on a micro level, things are going really well for me on a macro level. Spiritually, the country is sick. The country is sick, ill, down to the bones. Not even just COVID, just gross. Like, yeah, no, spiritually, emotionally, physically, the whole nine yards. It's all, we're all sick. We're all disgusting. And that's that. Thank you for coming on this podcast. Yeah. And this podcast, yeah. (laughs) Is is a manifestation of that sickness. Literally, podcasting is a is a symptom of the disease. Yes, I am addicted to talking to myself in my bedroom with people I vaguely know. It is a sickness. I am seeking help by continuing to do this week in and week out. Okay, so Joel, I like to start off by asking, what was the music you listened to growing up? Oh man, I mean, I went through so many phases. Uh, depend like depending on where we're at in the term growing up like I think like you know early early on my first CD was Britney Spears um the the first Britney first album yeah the Mm -hmm. first her first album um that was my first um CD that I ever purchased I think my first cassette tape was a boys to men cassette tape um so like it's pretty good you know pretty standard pop taste like I grew up watching a shit ton of VH1 and in the 90s. So I really developed a taste for like crunchy adult alternative rock, you know? Like I loved Mm -hmm. Alanis, I loved Third Eye Blind, Counting Crows, like the whole nine yards, Dave Matthews band, like all of it was really huge for me up until about junior high, which is when I switched over to contemporary Christian music pretty full time. Like I was like big. Reliant K was a huge one, but Reliant K was even a little too secular for me at okay. times. Um, yeah, I was like going deep, like FFH, Cayman's Call, um, Super Chick, like all of the like really uh, corny Christian contemporary like rock and pop bands. 
um, were huge for me. I would, I would, I would backslide consistently in middle school and, and like get an Avril Lavigne CD or a Michelle Branch CD, but always, I would always, always, always end up when I would go to uh, Bible camp in the summer, like burning or giving away those secular CDs in favor and, and like making a pledge to myself that I wouldn't listen to secular music anymore. And that would last for about six months until I would start listening to secular music again. Uh, and then by the time I was graduating high school, that's when things like pretty solidified pretty much. Like I was listening to a lot of like indie, um, like indie, you, you know, rock, uh, acoustic. I was listening to a lot of like pop punk, uh, Dashboard Confessional was huge. Death Cab for Cutie was a huge musical awakening. The Mountain Goats, Frightened Rabbit. Like I listened to all that shit throughout college. Um, and of course, like I, I would say like the sort of like consistent through all of this was probably musical theater. Yeah. I was listening to a lot of musical theater as well. Well, because musical theater like kind of straddles both worlds a lot of the yeah, time. Like I mean, if you're like doing like an old musical your Christian parent isn't going to be like, don't listen to Hello exactly. Dolly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty accepted um, as, as, as fact. Cause they also weren't, I, I don't think they realized how much musicals had evolved by that point. Like they didn't know things like bear the pop opera Ooh. were a thing, you know, like they just thought it was all, you know, bye bye birdie, the music man. Um, Cause that was all, th those were the shows I was doing in high school, you know, so that they didn't have any, you know, conception for how things had evolved and like, you know, they weren't listening to Rent. They weren't listening to, you know, all of the, you know, more contemporary musicals that got a little saucier, you know, Avenue Q, like they certainly weren't in the know on any of those things. It's so funny how those musicals made me feel edgy when in reality, it's like, oh, God, yeah, not even. <laughs> Not even a little bit. I'm like, I'm still getting these from the li the public library. I'm still returning them and I'm still driving my yeah. parents' car around town because I'm a responsible teenager. Um, right. But Bear, man, were you at school when they did it in the basement of the house? I I think so. No, I was. we did Altar Boys when I was at school. I uh, don't think I was there for Bear at... Um, I, the, and please... Put some respect on that basement theater's name. It was the Last Chance Theater, the last of which chance I was the artist, uh, of which I was the artistic director for two years. So you we did correct. some an incredible work in that basement. Uh, the only thing I did with the illustrious Last Chance Theater was Debbie Does Dallas the Musical. Oh wow! Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Lots of lots of unauthorized musicals happening in that basement we did we did high school musical my freshman year in last chance um and it was it was before there was a stage version of high school musical billy sager literally just watched high school musical over and over again and transcribed it and then like we like figured out the music it was really really bootleg um <laughs> there like the thing is is like Last Chance was jank as fuck, sure. Like, it was just a basement that we painted black with a rudimentary light plot. Um, it was, like, a black box theater. You could fit maybe 30 to 50 people max. And that was, and the, like, major fire hazard vibes. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but, like, it, it still was some of the most interesting stuff I ever did was in that theater. Um, the first play I ever wrote went up in Last Chance. Um, and... Yeah, so I, I miss, that's like the one thing about college that I do miss is like that sort of vibe is is 
all of the like sort of guerrilla do it yourself. I'll like, I'll buy the flowers myself sort of mm-hmm. moments that you had to have doing theater at a school like Milligan or any, 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 any theater school I think has the same, a similar experience, but especially at Milligan. Absolutely. Well, and we are both PD2 girls at heart, which mm, I think yes. really does make us edgy as we, yeah. you know, wanted to use a staircase and a place with mold and uh, absolutely yeah do some viewpoints and some more shit. mold the better yeah. <laughs> no i do wish i had taken more advantage of just like who the fuck cares in college you know yeah. like looking back on it i'm like i should have done weirder and crazier shit because like that's the time the stakes were very low the stakes were low and then at the time i felt like they were high because you know i could have been exactly, kicked out at yeah. any moment which is really fun but yeah, we should have just, I should have just been doing more shit. But instead, I was just drinking and partying and having a good time in the middle of nowhere, Illinois. Hey, that's completely valid too. <laughs> um, am I making this up that you enjoy the Gilmore Girls? Oh yeah, I love the Gilmore Girls. I've seen I've seen the 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 core seasons two through five, mm-hmm. probably upwards of over like at least ten times. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, I mean that for a while at Milliken, I the the box the the complete series of Gilmore Girls was the most expensive thing I had I had ever purchased or owned for many years. Like, um, yeah, it was like next to my car. I think the most expensive thing I had ever purchased. Um, so it was it was quite I, I I coveted it. I coveted the shit out of that. And then when I moved to Chicago and I was working at Groupon, I would bring them to work with me. And watch them sort of continuously on loop in the background while I did my work uh, for the Coupon Factory. <laughs> no, it is my number one comfort television show. Anybody who has ever lived with me has, sorry, you've seen the whole thing. And by the whole thing, I mean, I don't watch season seven and I don't think any of you should. No, I've only seen season seven all the way through maybe one or two times. Um, it is not good. I, I never recommend. I think people should stop at six for sure. For sure. Um, it's tough really tough stuff. Um, my, I, I remember um, one summer I lived with Chris Tuttle, another alum of Milligan University, and he would complain constantly because I would fall asleep to the Gilmore Girls. Yeah. And the, that fucking DVD, like this is the something that kids today just don't understand is the, the continuous loop of a DVD menu uh-huh. um, just over and over and over again. And he's it like drove him insane. He was like, it's triggering for him now. If he hears a little <laughs> bit of the like sort of la-las that happen and that, that are sort of um, key to the Gilmore Girls soundtrack, like he will lose his fucking mind. For me, the DVD menu that will always be with me is the Moulin Rouge DVD menu. Oh, yeah. Because, like, it would be like, I'm the Green Fairy. And I'd, like, wake up from, like, a sleepover and be like, what is <laughs> going on? No, I adore the Gilmore women. I um, <laughs> still, it's so funny, though, because I feel like if you didn't get into them in the early 2000s, I have a hard time telling people to start watching. Yeah, it is. Well, because part there's two things going on in there. Uh, one is they're like 22 to 24 episode long seasons, which is unusual for today. Like anything above 12 is sort of like, oh, wow, what's going on? Um, and so it's a big commitment to get people to watch. I will say it is a strong first season, too. So it's not like one of those things where it's like you got to watch 42 episodes before it gets good. Right. I will say like it is like if you're into it at the beginning, you will be able to sail through the rest of it. Um 
but yeah, and I I do think most of it holds up, like the cadence of it. There's definitely stuff that does not hold up. Right. Um, like she's definitely like a little racist, I think, like Amy Sherman Palladino as a creator. Not like egregiously so, but just in the same like blind spots that a lot of creators had. Like I don't find the Kims to be like an, an especially authentic or um, interesting portrayal of a Korean American family. Um, I do love Lane Kim though I, as a character. I just think like the mom is a little bit much and we've seen it. Um, and there's like no black characters except for Michelle, I think. And then like yes. some tertiary characters later on, which is also crazy to think about now. Um, but yeah, I mean, beyond that, I think a lot of it does hold up quite well. I will just always remember Lane Kim dyeing her hair and then putting it back. Yep. Um, huge moment. Huge moment. I, I will say too, the Gilmore Girls were like an Amy Sherman Palladino. And this is like something I probably would not admit everywhere, but hugely inspirational to my writing. Like I remember I wrote my first play because of like, I don't know. I, I just remember like write, wanting to write scripts because of the Gilmore girls um, and like wrote my first play. It was, it was thematically completely dissimilar from the Gilmore girls, like nothing, but like sort of the, the, the cadence and the vocal patterns and the, the rhythm of which the language happens is so much to this day. In fact, I would say pretty heavily influences by Amy Sherman Palladino and specifically the speed at which they talk is something that I carry with me to this day in my writing. Like I remember when I was um, turning in like drafts of fire Island, they kept being like, this is really long. This is really long. And I was like, no, 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 no. Everyone's going to be talking at Gilmore girl speed. This will be fine. And I was right. We we're coming in at a lean one thirty seven for Fire Island, which is Beautiful. you know in in a world full of two and a half hour long movies these days. I'm very happy about that, but it is like page count wise should be over two hours long. Um, but because everyone talked like a Gilmore Girl, we were fine, and they all know what that means, which is the exactly glory of being well not gay. not everybody <laughs> not everybody. I have to say there was a, there was a learning curve for I would say most of the cast. But, um, you know, gay guys, we yeah. talk fast, too. So it, right. it, the, it was easily translatable. I am always astounded as I have begun to write um, the amount of words I can fit and be like, oh, that's a lot. And then I say it out loud and it's not, um, yeah. which is great, I guess. Um, <laughs> I wish that I had a nice, slow cadence of speak. Um, but then you'd have to pay attention to everything I said and it would be a little bit yeah. too much, I think. No, no, you know, too much way too hard so when you started writing did were you always a writer like as a kid and stuff and then mm. you were like i'm gonna do this because i've always admired the fact that you have seemingly from the outside been able to craft your way through what you wanted to do without kind of like regard to what had been set before you yeah um yeah, I I was always a writer, like as a little kid, like I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a shit ton of fan fiction mm. um, growing up, like that was sort of my in, I was always a reader, that was like a big thing for me growing up, like I, I started reading really young, I was really into reading growing up, thank God. And so that sort of led to a natural inclination and interest in writing. Um, I wrote a lot of short stories and a lot of books that never got finished when I was like in middle school um, and beyond. Um, and then, you know, writing for whatever reason felt more in 
impenetrable and inaccessible to me as a career than being on Broadway did. Don't ask me the logic there. And so like when I initially went to Milliken, it was really primarily to be a performer. Um, and yeah, and so, and Milliken really didn't have like a dramatic writing program to speak of by any means at the time anyways. And so, yeah, I mean, like I was like, oh, writing would be too hard. Let me try and get on Broadway instead. That that seems more attainable. It um, still does. Um, yeah. And it wasn't really until my sophomore year that I, I really wrote anything. Um, I wrote, I, I, I arranged, we, we had a found space theater festival my freshman year where we like would do pop-up performances of original works all over campus. And I remember my freshman year, I submitted an idea and it got picked and it was basically, I took our entire freshman classes, movement monologues, basically anybody who wanted to participate, um, the monologues we had to do for the entire year that everyone would, was sick of because they were like one minute cuts of monologues. Um, and I'm explaining for the audience. Yes, absolutely. You, I know you, I know you yeah. understand. I mean, I blacked um, out but, for a lot of college, so you can oh, yeah, refresh yeah, yeah. me. Yeah. Um, but I took, I took those monologues and I spliced them into like basically a play, but only using your own lines from your own movement monologue basically what were your dialogue sort of like reorganized and spliced together in such a way that it like was like an overview of what it was like to be a freshman at Milliken but only using lines from these disparate monologues and um you know I was a genius yeah it sounds um, like you're a DJ (laughs) yeah about yeah about 18 people I think probably saw that project um and I'm still deeply proud of that to this day but yeah I didn't really start writing um, I didn't, I, I never considered writing scripts and I certainly never considered writing plays, um, or for television for that matter. Um, until I, I really just did it sophomore year pretty much. And that's what I'll say. Like, I have a lot of thoughts about Milliken as a decision to, uh, for school, but I will say that like, there were a lot of opportunities like last chance theater and others that like, just gave you an opportunity. If you wanted to do something, you could do it. You could find a way to do it. Um, at school. And um, I'll always appreciate that because it really did like that freedom opened a lot of doors for me creatively in terms of what I I realized I could accomplish at school. Do you think that then allowed you to step into a comedy space because you were like already kind of exploring new ways of doing stuff? Or were those just like separate thoughts? That pretty separate, I would say. Like my thing is, is like, so I auditioned for the improv group on campus like twice i auditioned for unbit which is like our de facto sketch group like i think three years in a row never made either never considered myself an especially funny person um because of that like i just never i i was i felt like i was a pretty serious person like literally all of my plays like the first three plays that i wrote in college were about suicide pedophilia and sex addiction um so like a regular neo so like, over here <laughs> yeah yeah so i was like really into being serious but there was there were always moments of levity and there were always pops of comedy um in all of my scripts and it's so funny because like i still i still gravitate towards like pretty dark and like fucked up subjects but for now as a as a, as a quote-unquote comedy writer like it, i do sort of they're serious subjects treated seriously but i think that there is humor in you know 
in, in everything. You can find it in everything, especially when there are humans involved. So, um, yeah, so it's sort of flipped, but yeah, I didn't think about doing comedy until I moved to Chicago after college. Um, and that's when that really started to happen, uh, in large part, um, because of Groupon, honestly, is the day job like Groupon at the time hired mostly comedians and actors, um, to run their customer service department. And so I was surrounded by comedians all day long and just sort of got a sense and a feel for like how they were doing it and how they were making it. Cause again, it was one of those things that, that, that felt really impenetrable. I was like, I would not have even known where to begin or where to start as a comedian in Chicago, if it wasn't for the fact that all of my coworkers were comedians and like, I just sort of watched what they were doing and, and, and aped it. And I was also uh, a part of a theater company in Chicago that did a lot of comedic work. Um, and gave me the opportunity to perform stand-up for the first time at like a sort of after hours like variety show and I, that was the first time i started doing stand-up was with that theater company that's just so crazy that your groupon job was essentially your first like writer's room yeah basically <laughs> i mean that lunch at groupon was hell because of that because it was just like people constantly running bits over and over and over again and like no shade to anybody who worked there who a lot worked with a lot of funny people but after a while it just became very apparent i was like wait, I could do this. Yeah. This is what, this is what is funny. I, I could do that. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's sort of the genesis of my entire career now. I think that moment happens with like all creatives and whatever they do. Like you have to have this moment where you look around and you're like, wait a minute, like this is music. I can, I can make that. Yeah. And then like continue on to grow, but you have to have this moment of, recognition that like it is something in you that you can do and it does kind of feel kind of gross because you're like you're like wait a minute i could do that but you know it gets started gets you going so joel we have reached the point of the podcast where i do have to ask you the question of the pod which is why are you like this ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. 
why am I like this? Well, I mean, I would say it is a steady stream of um, growing up religious combined with growing up surrounded by comic books, um, like split the difference between those two things. And that's really what, where it came from. I think I have like a real reverence for the spiritual because of that, even though I don't consider myself a Christian today, like I think like there, it's really hard to be indoctrinated into like deep evangelical religion and not come out the other side with a sort of reverence for the spiritual or I, I, you know, I know plenty of people who went the other way as a reaction to being completely atheist, but like that sort of like innate reverence for the spiritual combined with like the theatricality of comic books and like the, the wonder and the, the like amazement that came from reading these sort of like outside stories about gods, really like the sort of modern American mythology um, is comic books, you know? And like, um, growing up loving the, the like comic books really shaped sort of like a lot about the way I view making art, a lot of the ways I view the world in general. And specifically it's just like my aesthetic as a, as a, as an artist is, is like heavily influenced by the work of like some really incredible comic book writers growing up. Who's like your girl? Um, Peter David, Mark Wade, Gail Simone, like those three names are like sort of in the top for me. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, um, Greg Rucka is huge. Um, it, it, I'm, there's one, I can't believe I'm, um, um, forgetting his name because he's, oh, Jeff Johns. Yeah. Jeff Johns. He's, um, he's actually, and he's actually like behind a lot of like the current, like DC programming on the CW, like the flash and, and legends tomorrow, like all those shows, which I'm not super into. I'm not super into like the media surrounding comic books now. Like I, I, I obviously watched the MCU, but I was a DC girl growing up. So wow. I was like big into Batman was like maybe my favorite like world of, of superheroes. Like I, I especially like the characters that surround Batman more than I'm interested in Batman himself, but I am like fascinated. I think like I grew up really loving like Wonder Woman and, and like the justice league and like the big marquee superheroes in the DC universe. But when I really discovered a lot of the interesting stuff that they were doing with Batman in the early two thousands was really making it like leaning into the street level nature of him as a hero. And just like, this is a guy in a suit and like these are like the real human issues that are plaguing this city, like poverty and you know um, disease and 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 corrupt governments and stuff like that. And that really did like sort of like um, take all of my wonderment about like the uh, from comic books and like shape it into like this more like grounded idea of like the fantastical of like looking around and being like amazing fantastical things are happening in the real world every day and like how do we dramatize that as a, as artists and like that really became interesting to me um really like the arc like no man's land which is an arc in in a, like a years long arc in in a batman comic book and um yeah that, that that just became like a huge driving sort of creative force for me and and then like it really did like lead seamlessly into theater because you know i, I was using that word theatrical a lot but like the drama and the, the theatrics and the pageantry of superheroes, especially DC superheroes, um, I think like really did like go hand in hand with my love of theater and, and theatrical. I do find that interesting that like the story that really hooked you 
wasn't really like we're flying through space and we're fighting in other worlds. It was very like grounded in reality. No powers, an earthquake, you know, like destitute city. Like that was what really like, I think like, I think had I not gotten into some of the more or, or had comic books, not themselves sort of started to change course and shift towards looking at like what, how, how they could mix the fantastical with the realism. Um, I probably would have deserted comic books after a certain time. You know, I think like they started to grow up with me. Um, and so I was able to, you know, my taste evolved along with the ways creators in comic books were evolving as well. So that really, yeah, they stuck, uh, I stuck, you know, I was reading that. I'm, I still, I'm much more casual about my comic book reading now. Um, I'm more, definitely more inclined to read like an indie um, you know, but something like, uh, uh, saga or something like that. But like for me now, um, oh, Brian K. Vaughn. Oh, that's another huge one. Grant Morrison. Those are another huge influence in me writing like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think like, um, I was really consistently reading comic books like throughout college and then early days, um, out of college as well. Did you think, or do you think comic books also helped influence like you as a queer person or were they separate? I mean, it, it definitely, I'm sure colonized my brain in a certain <laughs> way in terms of like my sexual, like what I am interested in, in guys, you uh-huh. know, yeah, like, for sure. I'm sure like, you know, I, I, you know, nobody needs help learning to love a like, six foot something muscly dude you know like in our society there's not a lot of help needed but i definitely don't think comic books hurt me in that regard like they definitely um didn't steer me away from um that kind of uh vibe man (laughs) uh you had mentioned that you were writing like fan fiction a little bit and um my beginning into like i wonder like I wonder if like boys kissing makes me horny was reading. I think it's called Schnoogle. It's a Harry Potter fan fiction site that I would go on. And I know that like they would be put in different colors and like red was like sexy and it would be like Draco oh, and yeah. Harry kissing or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the first piece of pornographic material I ever consumed was a Pokemon fan fiction huh. that was like sexual uh, between like, Brock and Giovanni and Mewtwo and Bulbasaur was involved in some way. So yeah, it was really fucked up. But yeah, I read a, a shit ton of, of like sexy fan fiction because it was like, I don't know, we, we're a few years apart, but like um, I'm from the generation of the computers in the kitchen, mm-hmm. um, you know, like common area kitchen, uh, common area computer household. So like porn was really hard to consume. And out in the open like that. So I was doing a lot of reading porn because that's, you know, from far away, nobody knew that like the, what I was reading was, was sexy in nature. So um, yeah, definitely consumed a lot of sexual fan fiction. Uh, I was definitely lucky that my dad still worked. He worked at Intel. And so they would just kind of like throw out computers a lot. So I had like some Frankenstein computer in my bedroom and uh, my best friend, had found gay porn on my computer when I was like 12 and he was already out, but I wasn't. And he, until I came out at 19, kept that secret. And I was, wow. Yeah. Cause I would have, I would have been like, bitch, I see you. And, um, 
he's a better friend than me. <laughs> but yeah, I was reading a lot of porn first. I think just because if it stayed imaginary, it was like easier or something. I don't know. But yeah, Harry Potter fan fiction really got me going. So comedian in Chicago, come to New York, make a shit ton of friends, move to LA, come back. You're filming a movie with your friends. How was that? Was it fun? Um, yeah, I mean, it was life changing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it was it was hugely life changing. It like a gigantic sort of milestone in my life that I think I will never forget. I think like I'm so lucky. You know, I've been trying. I've been selling scripts for you know the better part of the last five years, and I've never managed to get anything actually made past the development stage. And so this was like, and this did, you know, for a while didn't seem like it was going to happen. It was a Quibi originally. And then we all know how Quibi went down and then was rescued by Hulu and Fox Searchlight. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a big stressful moment getting there, but the ability, being able to do this movie with two of my best friends, Matt and Bowen, and then, you know, a lot of new, new friends too, that I made that got, I got really close to was really like I, I I just feel so blessed and and grateful that I got to this was my first movie um of my own creation that I got to do because especially with doing it with Bowen like you know I've been talking about this a lot but you know when Bowen and I first met like seven or eight years ago I don't think there was um the assumption that we would ever really get to co-lead a movie you know like that that seemed like talk about science fiction like that felt very unlikely because we both check a lot of the demographic boxes that I think would keep us as tokens in a lot of movies. Um, and so getting to do a movie with my best friend where we play best friends and it's not, you know, necessarily, it's not, it is not all about like being Asian. It's not all about being gay, but it's about those things in part, like it was really, really powerful. And it's, it's so inspired by our friendship and a lot of the things that we went through um, on fire Island and outside of fire Island that like, I don't know, I just, um, it was a big stressful time, but I would not trade it for the world. I mean, I can't imagine anything more stressful and beautiful than being able to stand with friends of mine that have been working with me on the come up as we've been doing things and we're here and we're making a movie and it had to have felt just kind of unreal. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. But I know that literally every gay person on the planet is excited to see it, including myself. Uh, I don't know about every gay person on the planet, but no, I took a poll. I, I took a poll <laughs> on Twitter. I have uh, four followers and they all said yes. So that's a hundred percent. Well, yeah. You know, I'll take it. That's I'll take polling. It for sure. <laughs> so what is your media diet now? What do you consume? Who do you like? Oh, man. Um, I mean, so I am deep, deep in the throes of a, of a media focused relationship. Uh, my boyfriend and I like it's so funny. Like a lot of people say that, like, when you start sort of like planning what you are going to watch with your partner, that's when the relationship has died. And I just like, don't agree with that at all. Like, I think like it, the, the things that the, the things that we choose to consume together in terms of our media diet are so sacred to us. Like we are non-monogamous, but like, like I could give a shit if he fucks somebody else, but if he watches a show that we are watching together with someone else, like that's a huge issue for me um, because we both 
you know, we both work in story. We're both, um, you know, he he's a video game producer. He's a story producer for video games and a world builder. And like, so like we both take it very seriously. Um, and you know, it, we we're watching a shit ton right now. Um, we're watching severance on Apple queen, Patricia Arquette, always delivering, um, straight to your doorstep. Um, it's an amazing, it's a really fun, it's a, a little bit of a slow burn to get into, but, um, it ramps up really quickly. I think it's funny. I think it's interesting. I think it's original. I think it's posing a lot of like fascinating questions about, um, morality in a, in an interesting, like not super hard sci-fi way, but just like a light sci-fi way. Um, we're watching winning time, um, which is unusual for, more so for my boyfriend than for me. I think like it's about the, uh, the Lakers, like the, the first season with magic Johnson, on the Lakers in the seventies. And that's like, it's Adam McKay. And so like, even if you think like, I am not into sports, I'm not into basketball. I do not care about this story. I will say Adam McKay has like a really good, um, like he has a, a, an incredible skill, which is like getting me to care about things I would not otherwise care about. Like, I think like the big short is a really good example of that. Like I could care. I, 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 I do not know anything about the housing market, could not care less about the housing market. Um, the crash in 2008, like, but he made it so fascinating that I now feel like both like an expert and a, an active participant in the 2008 um, uh, housing crash. So um, yeah, definitely check that out. We loved Station Eleven. Um, we're watching Drag Race um, along with every other gay person. Um, and yeah, that's like, that's, those are the big ones for sure. Right now we just finished the OA, which is an old show on Netflix. That is, I'm devastated to say canceled. Um, but definitely one of my favorite things that I've watched uh, recently. I have seen the orgy scene. Um, oh yeah. And that's about, oh no, I think you're thinking of, um, sensei. Ah, damn. Yes. Which we also started, <laughs> have not finished, but yeah. Joel, what's your favorite thing about being gay? Um, I think my favorite thing about being gay is it's a sort of a double-edged sword, but I do think that there is no model for the way we live our lives. Specifically, I, I don't think there are a lot of set models for how we go about um, our relationships, you know? And I think like that's a double-edged sword in, in some way because it's freeing, you know, like we are just sort of figuring it out as we go along and there's no set, there's not as many set expectations that I think heterosexual couples have of like the, or the progress of like dating to marriage, to children, to families, you know, all of that stuff is, is a little bit less linear, I think for us. Um, and I really, you know, there's less of an expectation to even do some of that stuff. And so I really appreciate that. And at the same token, like, you know, at the beginning of my relationship, it became kind of difficult because again, there was no model for us, you know, mm -hmm. especially like if you're doing something outside of monogamy, um, there is no, there are, there, there's either no models for it, or there are too many models for how it could work and specifically for how it could go wrong. And so figuring that out without like looking and seeing something else and being able to like, sort of like sit side by side with another example of, of it and be like, okay, we're doing it right. Um, that can be difficult, but I think like ultimately is mostly just freeing. I think the, the open relationship of it all, you're right. I mean, you're either, if you turn around to ask somebody advice about an open relationship, they're either going to tell you something horrible or they're going to have some magical universe world where you're like, I don't, 
know how that happened. Yeah. Well, there's just, there's more, like, listen, every monogamous relationship is a little bit different. Like, I don't think every monogamous relationship has the same set of rules, but there is a much wider and more, like, sort of varied, like, like, differences between open relationship to open relationship. Like, I just know that, like, you really have to be communicative. You have to set your own, like, you have to know what your rules are. And, like, you know, with monogamous relationships, the golden rule, the umbrella under which most of the other rules for the relationship fall is do not have sex with someone else. And so for us, like, if that's not the, the major rule that's sort of setting up all the other ones, like we have to figure out our own sort of foundational stuff. And the, the big stuff is like communication. And it's, it's, it's much more about like intimacy, I think, than it is about sex. And like for both, neither of us consider sex to be the most intimate thing you can do with a partner. Um, and so, yeah. And so like a lot of us was just like figuring out what both of us are comfortable with and like what are our boundaries and and moving on from there. But I do think it took a lot more discussion than like we, you know, I think a lot of couples, it's like we're monogamous, end of discussion. And then you sort of figure out the rest trial by error. I think there's a lot more discussion that had to happen at the beginning of our relationship than had we just been a normal monogamous couple. Yeah, because you have to you have to talk about the like the actual things that feel sacred and personal to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas if you're entering a standard monogamous relationship, what you're you're putting a limitation on something. So you're saying I'm willing to give up this for you as opposed to saying, I want to build something with you. And these are the things that I need. Well, I do think that like, there's a danger with monogamous relationships that I've seen play out with a lot of my friends where like, because there's that golden rule of like, okay, don't fuck anybody else. And then I think a lot of monogamous relationships make the mistake of being like, that's the only rule. And then like the smaller stuff kind of comes by trial and error later on of like, oh, it makes me really uncomfortable when you text this way with this kind of person or this person, this specific person or something like that. And, and for us, like we had to talk about so much of the minutia and sort of build up from there. So like, I'm fully sort of vested and understand like where all his pain points are and he knows where all mine are um, in every like minute way, um, because that's where we had to sort of start from. Um and I don't think that either model for a relationship is better or worse than the other. I think it's it's definitely about like the person you are and the person you're with. Um, but yeah, I do think that like um, it are at least in our case, our open relationship really like fostered a lot of communication. Like I've never talked more about my feelings and my boundaries with a partner before this relationship. Yeah. So, you know, fuck whoever, but don't watch severance without me exactly yeah. yeah i like that well joel as we wind down i ask this of all of my guests do you have any questions for me mm, yeah sure um we both went to the same school we both had i think probably fairly similar experiences at the same school do you regret your decision to go to millican university in decatur illinois looking back with some distance now uh yeah I don't think that I should have gone to college at that time in my life at all. Yes, same. <laughs> like, I just, like, I don't regret the people I met and I don't, you know, all that jazz. If I'm just breaking it down into, like, what I absorbed going 
spending four years learning about how to be a creative, I just wasn't in the right mindset to go. Yeah, I think like there's a couple things at play for me. I have a similar answer. And I think like it's tough because I think there's an expectation in our country that you go immediately to college, which is not the same expectation that exists all over the world. Um, And so that's like one thing that I think is the problem is that like we're expected to make these decisions that affect the rest of our lives when we're 18 and that and not every 18 year old is ready to make those decisions. And for me, like I went into so much debt going to that school. Yeah. Like it re- and it really was like a detriment to me in the many preceding years after I struggled really hard because I was paying off those fucking loans and I took out an embarrassing amount of loans to go to Milliken. Um, I don't even want to talk about it. And like, had I not been, had I not done a season as a series regular on a, on a network sitcom, I don't know that I would have ever paid off those loans in a timely fashion. Like I, I got very lucky. And obviously looking at my life now, I'm like, no, I wouldn't change a thing because it has gotten me to where I am now. And I'm very happy with where I'm at now. But the gamble is always sort of like, for me, like would I have been farther had I not had these things sort of burdening me? And I think like for me now, like especially if a kid asked me like, should I go to Millican University today? Honestly, I don't know what I would say. I, 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 it would be hard for me to say yes to tell any kid to to go to any school for theater. Yeah, honestly, um, to if especially if you're going to go into debt, don't do it. Like if you want to do, if you want to be a performer, if you want to make shit, if you want to be an actor or a writer, like move to New York or LA or Chicago. New York or LA preferably and just start taking classes there, start getting involved and start working right away. Like just don't go to school at all. It's such a racket, you know? And if you, if your parents can pay your way comfortably through theater school, then yeah, go to whatever theater school floats your boat, makes you happy. But unless you're going to like Yale or some shit where you know that the network is going to be there to like help you make that investment worth it. I don't know that it's that right now it's worth it. You you know? Yeah, no. Yeah, I agree. It was very like school got done and I hopped out and I was like, well, who do I talk to? Like who, who is somebody in this network? And then, you know, just all this other stuff that you come to think about later on. Like I'm, I will always remember being praised for being butch in class and being chastised for showing any sort of feminine energy or auditioning for my friends show that they wrote and being told like you're just not gay enough to play gay like these things happened at that school and didn't didn't help me flourish into what I do now Right, right. So, like, I, yeah. I, I, I learned a lot. Like, this is the thing. Like, I learned a lot. And obviously, like, you know, one thing about Milliken that I'm sure is true of, of other schools I don't have any personal experience with, but it really did teach me how to hustle. You know, like, yes, I left with a shit ton of debt, but I, boy, did I have the work ethic to pay it off. You know, like, especially in those struggle years after school, um, before I was doing this full time, like, it really did... Um, instill in me this work ethic. Like I had three part-time jobs and I was doing 
a shit ton of extracurricular theater at school. And like, sure, was I sleeping? No. Was I healthy? No. But like, God, did I know how to work when I left that school? Uh, and so in that way, like, it did prepare me for a lot of things. But I just, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I'll always wonder a little bit, like, what would have happened if I had gone to a cheaper school or if I had skipped school altogether and just started doing what I wanted to do. But then again, like, you know, there was a lot of discovery that happened yeah. at Milliken. And I guess the big question is, is like, can you afford to pay 60 grand a year to discover yourself? Or can you do that while you're working a part-time job in a city, you know? Because I also can't confidently sit here and say, had I moved to New York at 18 from Portland, Oregon, I would have made it. Or, you know, like, I can't imagine being underage in the city at all. But yeah, who knows? Well, Joel, this has been so, so fun. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, besides, Thanks for having me. you know, Fire Island coming out. Anything you want to plug? You want to tell the children where to find you? Um, yeah, you can find me at all socials at I Hate Joel Kim. I have a special coming out and a television show coming out. Um, sometime this summer, I can't, the, the dates are not officially dropped yet, but um, be on the lookout. I will be posting ad nauseum about all of these things. So you can rest assured that. The summer of Joel we'll Kim Booster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. And until next time, y'all. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.